Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Glynis Board. Imagine this scene here in North America. Rewind back before shopping malls and coal mines. When, just a couple hundred years ago, the mounds of Appalachia were home to all shades of wild animals, including elk. But elk have basically disappeared. And some people think it would be great if they were brought back. Hearing an elk bugle in your home state, you know, as it echoes through the hills of West Virginia, it's, it's you know, make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Some hope the elk will bring tourists. I just drive from point A to point B, just take pictures of them. I just like wildlife. I take pictures of coyotes, take pictures of whitetail. But the elk, you know, they're so majestic, especially the bulls. In this show, we'll explore stories about humans and nature and what exploring the outdoors means to different people. We meet five-year-old Forrest, who was inspired to make maple syrup from trees in his backyard. So we can pack them and dip the sap and boil them to make it into boil maple syrup. That all sounds delicious. Yum! You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Glennis Board, and it is officially fall. Nights are cooler, and the days are just gorgeous. This year, though, fall feels different. We humans, my seven-year-old son in particular, seem very pent up with a lot of nervous energy. Seasonal and life shifts can feel a lot like anxiety, especially as we all keep abreast of the news from across the country and the globe, In particular, of course, the coronavirus. Today, we're listening to a show we originally aired back in the spring, at the beginning of the pandemic. And while the seasonal shift is different, much of the advice from public health experts still holds true. It's safest to avoid cramped public places. And when you're hanging out with friends, experts say, do it outside. Get some fresh air. Got a lot of that here inside Appalachia. Even as the weather changes, we have an abundance of wildness to explore. And today, we're celebrating that wildness. We'll talk with an Appalachian writer, Silas House, about how people across the region are being impacted by climate change and why he thinks the rest of the world isn't paying enough attention. We'll meet people who are inspired by wild places and wild animals. And we'll hear how a group is challenging stereotypes about African-Americans in the outdoors. So it's a packed show, and we begin with elk. Across Appalachia, there are several efforts to reintroduce elk back to the forests. There's a project in North Carolina, another in Pennsylvania, one in West Virginia. And in Kentucky, the project is now in its second decade. Reporter Irina Georgiev spent some time there to learn why so much energy has been spent reintroducing elk to the bluegrass state. In 1997, thousands of schoolchildren gathered in eastern Kentucky to watch as the governor unlatched the gates of a cattle trailer and released seven elk back into the wild. The animals had been caught in Kansas and trucked across the country. They darted out, their hooves banging against the metal trailer, then paused in the tall grass, regal and attentive. Over the next five years, 1,500 elk were shipped in from six states in the West and given a new home here in a designated managed elk zone. I remember we went up on this knoll and we looked down on this valley and there were about 300 elk standing in this valley. That's Trinity Shepard. He's a naturalist and gives elk viewing tours in Kentucky. I mean, there were just elk everywhere, just interacting and, and, 
they were just in their own environment seeing these animals here on in Kentucky without going all the way out west. Just like, wow. Chances are, if you're listening to this anywhere in the United States, elk once lived nearby, on plains now seeded with crops, and in valleys and swamps that have been drained. Elk were found in all but five states historically. That's Tom Toman. I'm the director of science and planning for the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. When Europeans started coming across the continent, they destroyed and fragmented wildlife habitat. They also hunted. Lots. Uh, By the time the uh, early 1900s, late 1800s, 1900s, uh, we had gone from an estimated 10 million elk in North America to less than 100,000. People still love to hunt and eat elk. But by the early 1900s, people started thinking of the animals as more than just dinner. An average male bull weighs 700 pounds and wears a giant rack of antlers, which he sheds and regrows each year. During mating season, elk bugle. That really strange sound, that one of the most wonderful sounds in, in nature. They do it to attract mates. Starts with a real low guttural sound and goes to a really high-pitched sound. Uh, then comes down, and oftentimes there's what they call a chuckle at the end, where they, uh, you can actually see the belly of the bull uh, expanding and contracting as they, they make that sound. The animals inspire awe. As I grew up in Wyoming uh, as a child, uh, elk were found uh, typically in the mountains, and that's always kind of a romantic place to go. We had to go to special places to see the special critters. Lots of us think of those kinds of places as wilderness. They may not meet the legal definition, but they're wild in spirit. In the past few decades, there's been a push to reintroduce elk in the eastern U.S. Tom, who lives in Montana, says it's part guilt, part growing conservation ethos. Hunters have tried this in the past without much success. But now, armed with science and modern habitat management, it's working. I think it is people trying to get back to as close as possible as, as what their, the wildlife natural history of, of their particular state uh, really is. But the result is not quite wilderness. I meet up with naturalist Trinity Shepard on a still dark winter morning in eastern Kentucky. We drive to where he thinks we can spot some elk. Keep your fingers crossed that they're out this morning. They may slip in. But no, they're up early today. As the morning light turns mauve, we come upon a herd. Look at all these elk that came out. I don't know where they came from. They munch grass along the road we're on. It's a few dozen cows and calves just a handful of bulls, their brown necks and cream-colored bodies still as we pass. We're not the only ones watching them. A white SUV is also parked nearby. Since I quit work, I'm over here every morning. I'm uh, Deborah Prater from Prestonsburg, Kentucky. This is like your morning ritual? Yes, it is. I just drive from point A to point B and um, just take pictures of them. I just like Wildlife, I take pictures of coyotes, take pictures of whitetail. But the elk, you know, they're so majestic, especially the bulls. I got hundreds of pictures of the elk. She holds up her camera to show me a picture. Oh, wow. Oh, this is nothing to what I've got. When Deborah leaves to take her photos, Trinity says that a couple of decades ago, it was a good day if you spotted a regular old deer or found a turkey feather. 
the change makes his imagination soar. I've always tried to imagine myself as Daniel Boone coming through the Cumberland Gap over into Kentucky at different times or whatever, looking around this rugged wilderness. But Trinity and I are parked in an industrial park. The land under us was mined by mountaintop removal, where instead of going underground, whole mountains are raised to get at the valuable seams of coal. When companies finished mining, they literally reshaped the landscape, where once stood steep, craggy mountains with swampy hollows, now roll gentle hills. Those lands provide uh, open grazing areas uh, for elk, and of course these animals being grazers like they are, they need a lot of uh, open land to be able to do that, so that's what uh, reclaimed surface mine lands provide. When I first heard people wanted to put elk in Kentucky, uh, I nearly lost my mind. Tom Toman with the Elk Foundation again. He's from Big Sky Country, and originally he didn't get how elk could live in the densely populated eastern U.S. But when we got to looking into it, uh, the area in Kentucky that had these reclaimed coal mines uh, was actually larger than Yellowstone National Park, with almost no farming, uh, you know, a few gardens, not very many people. Here in eastern Kentucky, about 7% of the 4 million acre elk zone is made up of reclaimed grassy plots. Trinity says without the reclaimed mine lands, there'd be no place for the elk in Kentucky's modern landscape. What's here is here. You know, we can't jump in the travel machine, go back and what change, whatever. We're here today at the industrial park. And as you look around, you know, you see a lot of concrete, blacktop, steel, metal, whatever. You don't think of this as an as a as a wilderness. It is an environment, but it you know you don't think of this as a wilderness. Other parts of the elk zone are more remote, more wild. But much of this habitat needs people to manage it. That can include mowing meadows to keep pasture tender for the elk, planting diverse grasses like clover and orchard grass. The state thins forests and does controlled burns. It's a lot of work for a wild animal. But the elk seem to appreciate it. There are now about 10,000 of them in Kentucky. Jeff Larkin, a biologist who studied the Kentucky Elk Initiative, says reintroductions also need to work for people. And what I mean by that is um, certainly if, if an individual takes a hike on a late September day, they will have that sense of, of being in a wild place, right? Probably much more wilder than, than where they live. And I would argue that the sense of wilderness would be greatly enhanced by that person experiencing, you know, the sudden booming of a bugling bull elk as he watches over his harem. That experience could make people care about conservation and preserving true wilderness. In that sense, the return of a species to a landscape is, is uh, perhaps more important than the ecological role that it plays in preserving or, if we want to say, recreating some sense of wild places. Trinity and I make one more stop at a local airport. Manager Gary Cox says he was initially against the elk reintroduction. He was already having problems with the growing deer population. Uh, when I would get night flights, I would literally have to chase the deer off the runway or before aircraft landed here at night, which was pretty troublesome. And then they dumped about 600 elk, not 
two miles from where the airport is, and I was thinking, you know, I'm going to have this major problem. Then he got a tall fence and learned that the elk once lived in the area. That warmed him to the animals. He says he knows what it feels like to be from a place. Most people who move away from eastern Kentucky, when they die, they want to be buried in eastern Kentucky. There's a strong tradition of people coming back to eastern Kentucky. It has a pull on you that it's, it's just home to you. If it's possible, you want to return. He says the landscape here is a big part of people's identities, and the elk are now part of it again. That story was reported by Irina Zhorov for The Pulse, a weekly health and science podcast from WHYY. So as we just heard, elk have been successfully reintroduced in places like Kentucky, but it's not an easy thing to do. Out west, lots of wild places have been preserved, and that's often where you find elk living these days. Here in the east, well, the land has seen its fair share of industrialization from coal mining and timbering. Once the land has been stripped and mined, it kind of looks like some of those western states. So are reclaimed strip mines the best environment for these wild animals? Folks in West Virginia think so. Five years ago, they launched their own elk reintroduction project inspired by Kentucky's. They estimate it could eventually give a $3 billion hunting and tourism boost to the economy. Our Folkways reporter Caitlin Tan spent some time trying to catch a glimpse of elk in the southern coal fields of West Virginia and learned how the project is going. The Department of Natural Resources crew who oversee the West Virginia Elk Project are driving me through the back roads of Logan and Mingo counties in the heart of the state's southern coal fields. We're on the over 35,000 acre Tomblin and Laurel Lake wildlife management area that's mostly reclaimed strip mines. Randy Kelly, the DNR elk biologist and leader of the program, says there's about 80 elk on the reclaimed mines. So what happened was they got here and wanted to mine coal and they they couldn't there's an elk right there see uh over there okay there you've seen your first elk in west virginia you have not even got out of the truck yet and on our left is actually one of the few active strip mines in this area logan klingler the dnr wildlife manager explains as an explosion goes off the state's up in the 80s percent forested like we we're, yeah we're just that's an old mine blast blowing up rocks and they're gonna go mine it and then they're going to put it back together and they're going to put grass on top of it. Which is actually preferred elk habitat called early successional growth. Basically open areas with freshly seeded grass that aren't heavily forested. Something that West Virginia doesn't naturally have much of. West Virginia's elk herd was brought in from Kentucky and Arizona between 2016 and 2018. After a number of eastern states began reintroducing elk. Before the Civil War, before industrial development, elk were common in Appalachia. The rugged landscape was spotted with the 700-pound, light and dark brown creatures bugling during mating season in the fall. Now, that's actually a recording of an elk from the National Park Service. They only call out like that in the fall. But also, we didn't end up seeing any elk up close, just the one in the distance from the truck. Our goal was to accompany the DNR guys as they located and shot elk with tranquilizer guns to put GPS tracking collars on them. The collars give the guys information about how the elk are adjusting to West Virginia like where they are eating and drinking and bedding down, or if they're staying off the roads. 
Randy says he and the crew go out most days in the winter to put collars on elk that don't have them already. But they are wild animals. And sometimes, like today, there are no elk. So we're skunked for tonight. Sometimes you get the dog, sometimes the dog gets you. <laughs> the dog got us tonight. The herd is also smaller than biologists had hoped it would be by now. They received grants from organizations like the Conservation Fund, the Wildlife Restoration Program, and the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, with the goal of reintroducing elk to southern West Virginia during a five-year time span. However, Kelly says other states aren't willing to give up their elk right now, so West Virginia has seen no outside additions to the herd since 2018. And this pushes back one of the main goals of the project, which is to introduce an elk hunting season to West Virginia. Although Kelly says he has high hopes for elk-related tourism, as there's already been interest in tours of just the wildlife management area, without even a guarantee to see any elk. But with the state surrounded by successful, longer-running elk reintroduction programs in Kentucky, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina, is it realistic to expect tourism numbers to soar in West Virginia? Sarah Cottingham is a West Virginia-based community planner at Downstream Strategies who specializes in outdoor recreation planning. And she says maybe. I would not at all say that that means West Virginia couldn't be competitive. I think with targeted marketing and like aggressive pushing, that it, it really could be a successful destination. And I do think that adding elk tourism to that portfolio of what we have to offer would really enhance everything. And Randy Kelly, the Elk Project leader, says there's more to it than just the economic benefits. It's restoring a species that was once native here, kind of adding to that magic of wild and wonderful West Virginia. I've seen elk on TV. I've been out west. I've, you know, I've driven through Yellowstone. and Seeing elk at home is a whole lot different. Or hearing an elk bugle in your home state, you know, as it echoes through the hills of West Virginia, it's, it's you know, to make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. As for the local community, Kelly says most are supportive. John Burchett, a resident from Williamson, says he's hopeful the program will help the southern coal fields lagging economy. The, the post-coal economy uh, is going to be kind of tourism-based, and uh, the more things we have to do, the more entertainment, uh, more adventure tourism that we have, uh, the better off we'll be, and, uh, and the elk program is, is a big part of that. Although some local deer hunters have expressed concern about the ability of the elk to coexist with white-tailed deer, says Jake Wimmer. He's the DNR elk technician, and he says that so far the way the two animals use the land is different. Deer are, are browsers, and elk are primarily grazers. So your deer are going to be, you know, in the hardwoods during a nice mass drop year eating acorns while your elk are still going to be out on the strips, out on the plains, and, and grazing further good grasses. However, the DNR recently reported a third of the elk from Arizona, about 15, perished due to the East Coast's deadly brainworm disease, which white-tailed deer happen to be the host of. It's a snail or slug that animals can ingest from grazing, and it rarely affects deer, but typically will kill an elk. Researchers estimate about 10% of elk herds in the east fall victim to brainworm, albeit West Virginia is experiencing higher rates. Kelly says it could be the stress the Arizona elk underwent traveling 33 hours cross-country and adjusting to a new environment that lowered their immune systems. Jeff Larkin is a professor of wildlife ecology and conservation at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. 
He worked with the Kentucky Elk Reintroduction Program back in the late 90s. He says he saw higher rates of brainworm in the early years there, too. You bring in a thousand animals and you lose a hundred. Yeah, it's 10 percent, but you still have 900 animals to reproduce and replace what's happening there, right? It's not like it's great for the population. It's just that the population can withstand that. But West Virginia's elk population is still relatively small, around 80 elk. And every disease and death means the herd could be less resilient in the years to come. Growing those numbers without bringing in more elk from out west takes time. In Pennsylvania, for example, 177 elk were reintroduced in the early 1900s. And about 100 years later, the herd is thriving at around 1,000. And while the West Virginia biologists hope that it won't take that long to grow the West Virginia herd, they admit that the project is a little behind in their initial goal to reach 150 elk by the end of 2020. But in the meantime, they're maintaining the herd they do have. Plus, Kelly says he expects West Virginia-born elk calves this spring. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Caitlin Tan in Logan County. Since that story originally aired this spring, West Virginia wildlife officials have been able to confirm that at least 15 baby elk were born in the Mountain State, bringing West Virginia's herd to a total of about 85. After the break, we'll hear from naturalist and storyteller Doug Elliott, who for the past 40 years has been teaching children to explore nature through songs, including this one, which is kind of a riddle. Hide, 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 hey, there's a big black stain in my driveway. High as a house, low as a mouse, got more rooms than anyone's house. Hey, little high, hey, little little, look inside, there's a possum in the middle. What is it? Now, can you guess the answer to that riddle? We'll hear that answer after a quick break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Glynis Board. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. These days, kids are spending less time exploring outdoors and more time in front of screens. And frankly, it freaks me out, especially since studies show that time outside is great for kids. It can help them reduce stress and stay healthy. One North Carolina naturalist is using storytelling and song to get kids excited about the natural world. Reporter Sarah Lynch-Thomason tells us more. On a humid afternoon near Leicester, North Carolina, About 20 people tromp through a field behind naturalist Doug Elliott. They're on a plant walk, exploring trees, flowers, and herbs. Doug leads the group up to a large tree and pauses. Okay, everybody in a comfortable spot here? I got a riddle for you. And the riddle is an old, partially an old Appalachian riddle, partially a new Appalachian riddle. It goes like this. Hide, 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 hey, there's a big black stain in my driveway. High as a house, low as a mouse, got more rooms than anyone's house. Hey, little high, hey, little little, look inside, there's a possum in the middle. What is it? 
Black walnut. Black walnut. All right. Like a black walnut. Well, a black walnut is high as a house. There's a tree right there. It's low as a mouse when you see when the nut falls down. And then, but now, hey, diddle, diddle, hey, diddle, hi, hey, diddle, diddle. Look inside, there's a possum in the middle. What could that be about? Doug takes out a black walnut shell cut in half. Everyone bends in to get a closer look. Look at, look. The inside of the walnut shell looks just like a possum's face, with a narrow head and small black eyes. But Doug says not all of them look this perfect. It takes a lot, it takes a lot of nuts to get a possum. But, um, we, but we... For more than 40 years, Doug has been telling stories and singing songs about nature. His passion for everything from salamanders to sassafras started when he was young. I guess I remember as a, being a little kid, I can remember with it having a jar and a top and going out and catching bumblebees. Holding them in the jar and slapping the top on there. <laughs> I guess that was a real thrill to me. Doug says his passion for educating others about the natural world started when he was living in New England after college. I was an art major. I was totally unemployable. And I thought, if I'm going to be an, art, if I'm going to be an artist, I better start growing a garden. Started growing the garden, all these weeds came up. Weeds. Not what he was hoping for. But Doug says a friend had given him a book called Stalking the Wild Asparagus by wild food enthusiast Yule Gibbons. And after reading it, Doug realized that the weeds growing in his garden weren't useless. Some were even more nutritious than the plants he was trying to grow. And it kind of opened the world to me, like, oh my goodness. I got so excited about that, I started giving talks about nature and about useful wild plants. Since then, Doug has made a career out of storytelling. He now lives in North Carolina and says he settled in Appalachia because people here have a deep connection to the land, and they're willing to share what they know. I mean, most information you learn from the old-timers comes with a story, you know. Now in his 70s, Doug is the old-timer, so to speak. His work helps kids learn about nature at a time when most are spending less and less time in it. Doug says loose, unstructured time outside is an important outlet for the unbridled energy of childhood. The nature can be such a, such a sponge for all this kind of undisciplined, testosterone-ridden craziness, you know. One of Doug's biggest fans is a five-year-old named Forrest. Do you have any favorite um, plants or flowers that grow around here? I like, I like pine trees. And I like maple trees so we can tap them and get the sap and boil them to make it into boil, boiled syrup, maple syrup. That all sounds delicious. Yum! Forrest and his father, Kevin, live in a house on a rural mountainside in Barnardsville, North Carolina. During the evening, you can hear tree frogs and crickets right outside their door. Kevin tells me that Forrest spends a lot of time in the woods, watching tadpoles and deer. A few years ago, Forrest found some secondhand tapes of Doug's stories and songs, and Kevin says that Forrest was mesmerized by them. There was like probably a three or four or five even month period where he listened to these Doug Elliott tapes like every day. He would just like, he learned how to work the tape player. He would sit down on my bed and listen to Doug Elliott for 25 or 30 minutes, easy, sometimes more. All right, so now we need to push this button. 
Forrest fast-forwards the tape player to one of his favorite tracks, then starts reciting stories right alongside Doug's narration. All right, all right, Snake. I know you're out there hiding in those bushes somewhere. I know you're out there hiding, Snake. You should be ashamed of yourself. How dare you not show up for the Great Council? You better come out, Snake. Doug Elliott has a lot of stories about snakes. One of Forrest's favorites is about a non-venomous snake called a black rat snake. It lives near farms and eats rodents. The story is about a time that Doug gently squeezed a black rat snake to help it regurgitate a plastic egg. Um, Doug Elliott squeezed the Easter egg out of a snake. And that snake came to his pet and he kept it a little while and let it go. And then it just kept going away and coming back, going away and coming back. And I think it still does that. Kevin tells me that not too long ago, he and Forrest spotted a black snake near their house. But Forrest wasn't scared. He was excited because he'd heard songs and stories about snakes. I told Doug about Kevin and Forrest's black snake encounter. That warms my heart. If you ask me why I'm doing this, that might be one of the reasons. One of the reasons to see kids like Forrest delighting in nature. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Sarah Lynch-Thomason. The big black snake, he's crawling across my yard. Well, there's a big black I love hearing the voice of one of Doug Elliott's fans. I'd love to see what adventures Forrest is inspired to get into right in his own backyard. Often it takes great teachers like Doug to encourage kids to learn about the natural world and how humans are connected with nature. Writer Silas House argues that too many people around the world are losing that connection with nature. Earlier this year, he wrote an article in The Atlantic responding to the lack of media attention that he saw after parts of central Appalachia faced catastrophic flooding this past winter. In much of his work, the author and playwright celebrates the natural world and rural places and people. Growing up in southeastern Kentucky, House says nature was his paradise. Brittany Patterson spoke with him, and she began by asking Silas to read the first part of his essay. It's one of the things I feel luckiest about is that I grew up in the woods. My father worked third shift, and so that meant that in the summertime when I was in school, I just about had to stay outside, you know, or or be silent. And so we were just always in the woods. We played in the creek all the time. We built dams, then we'd tear down the dam. You know, we would build elaborate rock fortresses for our Star Wars figurines. You know, we were incorporating <laughs> our toys into the natural world. Just laying, you know, in a field and looking at the clouds and uh, running with my dog and even when I started riding, I would I had a little typewriter that my aunt bought me, and I would take it out into the woods, and and sit with it and and write, you know. So even today, I'm 48, and I still prefer to write outside. You argue in this essay that, in a lot of ways, those of us who live in rural areas, we have a, a really a strong connection to nature, and I think the hypothesis or the crux of this article is for those who might be out of sight and out of mind, they start to lose their connection to nature. Well, I do sort of want to make the disclaimer that I I don't think that just because somebody lives in an urban area that they're not necessarily uh, aware of nature or appreciate it. 
However, I think when it's something that dictates your everyday life, you are more aware of it. When you go outside and there's a mountain standing in front of you, and it is going to add an hour <laughs> to, to you get into wherever you need to go because you have to go around it, or you know you have to drive way down the river to cross the river, etc. I mean, those are really substantial parts of your day. And I know that when I was growing up, you know, I had this incredible uh, woods and pasture right in front of our house, and it was just like kind of my paradise. And then one day, all these bulldozers came in, and it became a strip mine for the next two years. And it just sort of, I never got over that. It it changed the way that I trusted everything, you know, um, to see that that could be taken. So I think when you live in a place of extraction, especially, you're real aware of of, of how it can be devastated and how it can be taken away. But there is also some kind of, I think, when you live in a place that's so ruled by the natural world, it does get into your blood and bones. It becomes a part of you. It's, it's part of your collective memory. One of the things I was most struck about your essay is, in a lot of ways, it seems like that strong connection, it hasn't translated to society valuing rural communities or, or paying attention when natural disasters like the recent flooding happen. I think most Americans want nature when it's convenient for them, and they don't want to go to any trouble to protect it. I mean, I, I hate to be so cynical, but that's certainly the way it feels. You see people in the Smoky Mountains National Park, you know, they're admiring the beauty of the mountains, and then they'll throw their trash out the window on the way out of the park. You know, it's it's mind-boggling and it's frustrating. And I think that if you really love the natural world, you have to go out of your way to protect it in whatever way you can. You write one of the consequences of society sort of writing off the experience of, of rural communities for so long and of people who live in rural areas is that by turning a blind eye to rural people, we're turning a blind eye to climate change. Well, I think as long as there's been popular media, this has happened. You know, you can trace it back to the literature that came about right after the Civil War, the local color literature, where Appalachian people were among the first to be really stereotyped, you know, portrayed as throwaway people or people who don't matter, stupid people, dirty people, etc. And so when so much of the population thinks of you that way, that that really helps uh, the corporations, that helps industry. You know, it makes it much easier to come in and destroy a community when the rest of the country just thinks they're throwaway people. I mean, something I think we've become so used to being negated to, to a certain point, we just start to accept it, and we just can't do that. You know, we have to stand up against that in whatever way we can. Yeah, and recognizing that climate change is already here. It's already impacting floods and other natural disasters in, in this region. To me, that's the main thesis of the essay that was in the Atlantic is, you know, I hear so many people in uh, places of power like New York City or Los Angeles or D.C. who, you know, want to talk about climate change and, and 
want to criticize the people of Appalachia for their role in that in the way that the region historically votes. But at the same time, these places of power are the very people who have negated rural people so long. So, you know, it creates this cycle that they can't seem to understand how that happens. Um, And it is complex and it's complicated, but Appalachians don't exist in a vacuum. You know, they're very aware of that negation and and, um, will take power however, you know, it's available to them. That was writer and educator Silas House. His online essay published last month by The Atlantic is called Eastern Kentucky is Underwater, but you probably didn't notice. Silas House said something interesting there about the way so many of us who grew up in rural places don't think of the outdoors as something separate from us. We don't think twice, oftentimes, about stepping outside and being immersed in places full of trees and running creeks. You know, there's a stereotype about the kinds of people often pegged as outdoor people. And if you buy into the outdoor gear industry and look at the models they use in magazines and websites that market fancy hiking gear and mountain bikes, you might assume that outdoor people are really only white. But that characterization is not true, says Rumap. She's black, and she loves getting outside. The challenge, contending with these stereotypes, inspired her to start an online blog called Outdoor Afro. And Outdoor Afro became a platform initially of storytelling and helping to shift the visual representation of who we imagine gets outside. Her blog evolved into a nonprofit with Outdoor Afro leaders and participants all over the country. The Allegheny Front's Kara Holsoppel sat down with Rumap and one of the group's leaders, Kim Rafosco, who is based in Pittsburgh. Well, tell me a little bit about how you grew up and how the outdoors influenced you. Well, I grew up in a family that came from the South and, like many African-American families, migrated North and East and West. And my family was a part of that great migration. And they brought with them their love for nature and the outdoors. And so they set up a ranch, which I completely took for granted. But it was really my laboratory for just connecting with the local environment, like what was going on with our local creek that was adjacent to the land was something I always look forward to jumping out of the car when we would get there to check out. And then there was just this sense of awe and community and hospitality that I feel continue to be a really big part of the work today. I'm interested in the word hospitality and a little bit more about what you mean by that. And my dad had the saying that you have a standing invitation. We had sometimes so many people in our house at the ranch that there would be people sleeping on the kitchen floor. And it was always a hot meal and a sense of welcoming. That's what I want to keep alive in this organization and really be a model for how we can be and how we can belong in the outdoors. Because the reality is, is that in this country, we've not always have been welcomed. You know, there were those signs that said we could not go into this or that park or swim in this or that public pool. And so we really doubled down on the black joy and the ability to get out and be free. So what's changed over the last 10 years? You you have a lot of, I don't know if you call them chapters or I think you call them communities. How many communities, how many people are involved? We're currently headquartered in Oakland with offices in Seattle and in Washington, D.C. We have uh, trained 
uh, nearly 90 African-American men and women from around the country who come from a variety of professional backgrounds. And the thing that they all have in common uh, is this fire in their belly to connect people to nature. And so it's this homegrown uh, community, this network really became the core because when you're talking about participation, you know, it, it tends to be a more transactional viewpoint. You know, we're going to take X number of kids, for instance, to some remote place and we're going to feel good about ourselves because we've done this one-time event. Whereas Outdoor Afro is really changing the conversation and the narrative about leadership and empowerment and helping to restore outdoor leadership back to the home so that we're not depending on programs that are formed outside of our communities to engage our communities and our families. Kim, you're one of those leaders. Just tell me a little bit about what your experience has been like here in the Pittsburgh area with this group. Pittsburgh is one of the newer networks to Outdoor Afro, and I was always looking for a group to belong to who liked to do some of the things that I liked to do. And um, I would get online and I would see this group, Outdoor Afro, and I'm like, okay, I can't wait till there's an event near me. And I would continuously look and there was not an event near me. And when it occurred to me, um, I could be that person. I can help out and be the Pittsburgh leader um, and make these events near me and I got very inspired by Rue's story and going to the first leadership training and um, just learning what they were about and feeling that hospitality that Rue spoke of um, that I was excited to get back to Pittsburgh and get started on it. When you say you were looking for a group you were looking specifically for an African-American group or just some place where you felt comfortable? Originally um, I started taking some classes in fly fishing and nobody fly fishing looked like me um, as a woman or as a black woman. Um, and so for me, just finding that someone that I felt comfortable with to do that, um, I wasn't necessarily looking just for a black organization. But then when I found out that this is the black organization of, of black people who also like to do what I do, it just connected. What are the stereotypes about African-Americans and the outdoors that maybe keep people inside? One of the things I like to do is to push back on those stereotypes because they just are stereotypes. When we go around our circle and invite people into our events, I often hear about favorite places such as their grandmother's garden. But the reality is, is that there has been disruption because of the reasons mentioned before of exclusion and lack of access. And then quite frankly, there's leisure time that people don't always have equitable access to. And what Outdoor Afro is, is a barrier flattener. <laughs> we like to come in and have done all the, the research. We you know, tell you what to expect, and we make it easy for you. So for me, it's not about what we don't do, but it's about the how and how we can build on the how and really keep the conversation of African-Americans in the outdoors in an asset-based location. You know, you know, we use terms that we should maybe hit the pause button on sometimes, such as low-income communities of color. That's a, a broad swath that feels so disempowering. When we're talking about our communities, we're talking about all the ways that we're already contributing. We talk about the people in our histories. I, you know, I always talk about Harriet Tubman as our wilderness leader who led people to freedom in the cover of night, who read the stars, who understood wildlife, who knew the markings of nature in order to help people get free. 
there are role models in our family and our history that we can talk about in different ways and tell a new narrative. What about you, Kim? What's been the benefit of being part of Outdoor Afro for you? Um, The people that I'm meeting. It's amazing to meet someone who says, I've never done this before, but I want to try. Um, and a lot of things I've never done before. And I'm like, well, we're learning it together. We're figuring it out together. But to see people, uh, their willingness to maybe get out of their comfort zone a little bit and try something that they haven't done before and and then give me that feedback after of how they felt accomplished about it has been really exciting. Do you feel like southwestern Pennsylvania is a place that's welcoming for black people in the outdoors? Uh, there are times when I... Maybe in the the woods or when I'm in the water and I'm alone and I'm thinking, um, you know, maybe I don't feel that comfortable. But doing things as a group and getting this our our networks together um, really makes me feel comfortable and safe. And I haven't run into any confrontation. Um, I say hello to everyone we pass on the trails. People smile and say hello back. So I don't think that... Being African-American has been limiting in that way. Um, I just make sure that that people know that I belong there also and um, just say hello. Um, The word joy, when I look at the photographs on your website of people hiking and swimming and camping, it's just, you know, it's just overwhelming. And um, I know that visual representation is a huge part of why you're doing this. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I always try and make sure people know is that Outdoor Afro is a love story. Um, And while we're focused, obviously, we're not exclusive. And it's really... It's really important to be specific. I, we have found that that specificity is universal. For instance, when we talk about black children learning how to swim, you know, because of the, you know, years of segregation and Jim Crow that kept us out of pools, but we've got this public health crisis where, you know, black children are drowning at five times the rate of white children, ages five through 19. And that if a child doesn't learn how to swim, they're not going to put a pole in a lazy lake. They're not going to ease into a kayak and they're not going to care about plastic in the ocean. So I feel like this this work has really um, felt very practical um, and accessible to more people than African Americans. It's some, it's the really the story of America that we are unpacking and using nature as really the ultimate open source platform for everyone to not only come together in community, but to help enrich our lives and, and solve some of our most pressing problems. That was RUMAP founder and CEO of Outdoor Afro and Kim Rufosco, one of the group's leaders in Pittsburgh. They were speaking with the Allegheny Front's Kara Holsoppel. Today, we've heard stories about projects that are trying to create communities that grow and are nurtured by their relationship with wild animals, nature, and the outdoors. There are plenty of studies that show we humans need fresh air. And unfortunately, most of us, including our kids, get too little time outside, away from screens. But we're going to close our show today with a bit of good news. 
We're going to hear about a species that was endangered but is now rebounding, West Virginia's northern flying squirrel. While challenges remain, federal biologists say the species continues to do well, in large part due to the restoration of its habitat, red spruce forests. Reporter Brittany Patterson recently took a hike through one of these iconic ecosystems to find out more. To understand how West Virginia's northern flying squirrel is doing, it's essential to visit what remains of the state's high elevation red spruce forests. So the really cool thing about it is we always say as the spruce goes, the squirrel goes. That's U.S. Forest Service biologist Shane Jones. We're hiking in a rare patch of virgin spruce in the Monongahela National Forest. Rare because beginning in the late 1800s, the vast majority of the state's red spruce was logged. After the forests were clear-cut, devastating fires burned up much of the spruce seeds. In its place, hardwood forest grew back. So we went from well over a million acres to less than 100,000 acres of red spruce forest. And that was the big disturbance that um, really threatened the, the northern flying squirrel. The squirrels and red spruce forest are inextricably connected, says Cordy Dickens, a research scientist at Virginia Tech. There's also certain food items um, that they that they like that are associated with spruce forests. She's talking about truffles. People like them, and so do squirrels. The fungi grow along the roots of spruce trees in deep organic soils created in these high-elevation forests. Diggins says for almost three decades, the northern flying squirrel was under federal protection, largely because its habitat, the red spruce forest, was so endangered. And the spruce forests go away, the squirrel's not going to have any habitat. Recently, federal biologists released an optimistic status report. It found in the five years since being taken off the list of endangered species, northern flying squirrels are still found across much of their range. But not everyone is convinced the squirrels are out of the woods or in the woods. Noah Greenwald directs the Endangered Species Program for the Center for Biological Diversity. The conservation group sued and won protections for the northern flying squirrel in the mid-2000s. He's concerned wildlife managers don't really know how many squirrels are out there. They just have some, you know, sort of somewhat sporadically collected information showing squirrels to be present or absent in different areas. And he has concerns about the forest restoration work to expand squirrel range. So now we're going on to an area that we call the Mauer Tract. As we pull off the side of the winding mountain road, Jones, the Forest Service biologist, explains that for decades, this 40,000-acre parcel was owned by the Mauer Land and Lumber Company. It was logged and mined for coal into the 80s before his agency purchased it. In the mid-2000s, Jones wondered if this land could be reforested with red spruce. Knee-high green baby spruce trees dot the brown landscape, growing up among the twisted, decaying limbs of downed hardwoods. What we're doing is we're taking an area that was like a biological desert, stuck in arrested succession, the ground was compacted, and we're putting it back into a forest that eventually, like 
long time for now will be a functional red spruce ecosystem. Jones admits that from the outside, it does seem crazy to create a new red spruce forest by wrecking a totally good hardwood forest. Yeah, it looks crazy, doesn't it? Downing trees, creating wetlands, uncompacting the soil. Jones says all of this increases the chances red spruce forest and the squirrel will thrive again here one day. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Brittany Patterson on Cheap Mountain in West Virginia. I love the red spruce forests of Appalachia. That they still survive and are home to animals like the flying squirrel does give me some hope for the future of our kids. There are a lot of places throughout Appalachia like that. People have been escaping germ and congestion-filled cities for the healthful, fresh Appalachian mountains for generations. As I mentioned at the top of the show, there's a lot happening in the world that is stressful. But there is medical advice I'm taking heed of. The risk of coronavirus does not mean you have to barricade yourself indoors. Actually, it's just the opposite. Diseases spread in closer quarters. So researchers advise that if you can, get outside and exercise with your friends. Go on a walk. We can still avoid sneezing into each other's faces and sing the ABCs when we wash our hands and all that. But the immune system loves the chemicals, soils, and evergreens put out just like squirrels do. And taking time to breathe and spend quality time in inspiring landscapes has to be good for the body, definitely for the soul. Till next time, thanks for joining me as we journey throughout Appalachia. We had help producing Inside Appalachia this week from WHYY in Philadelphia, the Allegheny Front, which is produced in Pittsburgh and reports on the environment, and the Ohio Valley Resource, which is funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps and Blue Dot Sessions. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or... Look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.